Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and for those of you who may have just joined us, my guest uh, is Kadri Leek, a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations uh, and a uh, guest who's been on this uh, on this podcast before. Uh, welcome, Kadri. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, to, it's great to speak to you again. Um, now, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, has compared himself in the past to some people you might think would be about as unlike him as one could get. Um, specifically, and I'd say inexplicably, he suggested he's on the same level uh, as the late nonviolent anti-colonial resistance leader Mahatma Gandhi. Well, both of them studied law, so there's that. Um, but on Thursday, uh, Putin likened himself to Peter I, uh, the czar known in the West uh, more often as Peter the Great, uh, and the, the one who was the founder of Putin's hometown, St. Petersburg. Uh, this was uh, on the 350th anniversary of, of, of uh, Peter's birth, uh, and Putin drew the comparison in the context of the war in Ukraine, though he did not mention it directly. He claimed that Peter, quote, returned, unquote, territory that was rightfully Russia's uh, and strengthened Russia in the process. And he suggested that he's doing the same in the war he's unleashed against Ukraine, uh, which has, in fact, of course, been an independent country, just like Russia, since the, so uh, the collapse I'm sorry, of the Soviet Union in 1991. Now, uh, many people uh, have interpreted Putin's remarks as kind of an admission uh, that whatever other goals or reasons he has cited for his decision to launch a large-scale invasion of Ukraine in February his real aim, or his main aim, is, is simply to, to seize land, a land grab. Kadri, how, how do you interpret Putin's uh, Peter the Great comparison? And I'll also ask, is it, is it important or just another kind of piece of propaganda? Do you think it will have any practical effect uh, on the course of the war in Ukraine? Karl Bildt, the former Swedish prime minister, uh, said that Putin's remarks were a recipe for years of war. Yes, thank you, Steve. These are all good questions. Um, I'll, um, I'll try to unpack it a little bit. Um, I think it is by now fair to say that this war is about land grab. Um, it has become about that. Uh, maybe it was about it to start with, because you know, when we were all the following the negotiations between Russia and various Western institutions and the United States in December, early this year, then I thought that of the things that Russia could want from the West, very many were available through that diplomatic path. Uh, definitely security talks about arms control that was explicitly offered, a uh, neutral status for Ukraine that was emerging. So Russia could have got a lot what they wanted. Also, uh, we like it or not, but I think the rearrangement of European security order 
was in the cards as well. The West had already started discussing these things with Putin in, in different paradigms. But the one thing that was never uh, available through diplomatic path was land grabs, dismemberment of Ukraine, incorporation of eastern parts or whichever parts into Russia. So the question back, to, back then to me was, but, you know, what does Putin actually want? If really he prioritizes his land over everything else, then these negotiations are a dead end. Back then I didn't think so, because Putin had always had significant element of, of rationality in his wishes and planning, and I did not think he was ready to sacrifice all other Russia's interests, or at least risk with them in a significant manner to get a chunk of Ukraine. But he did exactly that. Whether it was design or accident, we also don't know for now. We don't know whether he expected uh, <clears throat> annexing parts of Ukraine to be easy and uh, the West to forgive it soon, or did he really understand that ahead of him was a huge bloody war with huge sanctions and he still thought that risk was worth taking. We don't answer to that question right now. Um, I hope we live uh, until the archives open and we, we can maybe see some evidence of it. But <clears throat> all that was to say that I think it is about land grab. But it depends. Still, the question is, you know, what kind of land and why? My inclination is to think that Ukraine for Putin is special. And there seems to be a significant religious and historical motivation to his war. I, I think it's sort of a little bit like the Crusader-style war. Like Crusaders were trying to liberate the tomb of Jesus. Putin is trying to, as he would say, liberate the birthplace of Russian statehood, which happens to be Kiev. Uh, so... Hence the whole thing. Um, question is whether he would continue the same crusade in other lands outside Ukraine or how far even in Ukraine he, he intends to go. Many Russian interlocutors have said that you know, we are not interested in Lviv. Um, not that this makes things any better. but So I do not know if what we are dealing with is conscious plan by the Kremlin to really to retake uh, not just all lands of the former Soviet Union, but or maybe especially the lands of the uh, Tsarist Russia, and that would have implications also for Baltic states, but also to Finland, that was never part of the Soviet Union. Or is it still? overwhelmingly about Ukraine. Yet again, not that this makes it any better because there are multiple ways how, how this war can uh, spill over from Ukraine. It could spill into Moldova. Um, Poland is, is in the neighborhood and is helping Ukraine actively. Uh, <clears throat> I see that also some other countries that uh, have been actively equipping Ukraine with arms, etc., are worried if at one point their involvement does not make them direct target for Russia. So spillover options are, are definitely there, but there is a slight difference whether we speak about sort of conscious design to grab land or, 
Urspilla. Um, yeah, and of course it is an extremely archaic foreign policy agenda. I, I cannot stop wondering about that. I mean, to my eyes, Russia was emerging as sort of modern state that was not democratic, not nice in that way, uh, didn't share many of uh, the soft, nice values that we see in the West, but that was still sort of managing to set its its goals to match the ends and means and, and sort of finding its feet in the post-imperial environment. And now suddenly this war has sort of thrown them back really into totally archaic agenda. And the tragic thing for me is, of course, that it's really hard to see how people who come after Putin will get out of it. I'm afraid that if his aim was to saddle the uh, future generations with Ukraine, with the need to keep the country, to, to, to manage that territory somehow, then he may well have succeeded because even the people who were always against that war, should they come to power, it will be quite hard. Uh, I think we may have lost contact with Kadri. Um, oh. Sorry, are you there? Sorry, yes, I'm here. Uh, please okay, say great. it again. Yeah, it, it cut off for a second. Yeah, no, no problem. Go ahead. Uh, where did you lose me? Uh, just um, it, it, the, the idea that um, future generations post-Putin may be saddled with this uh, sort of idea that they have to, that Russia has to control Ukraine. And that yes. Yes, basically that's where I where I uh, finished uh, while while you didn't hear me. That it's it's really hard to imagine that uh, leaders who come after Putin and and there will be rose. It will be very hard for them, even if they were against the war, either passionately or reluctantly. Nonetheless, it will be quite hard for them to undo the war. Um, and in that respect, I think. Um, the, the end of this war, the outcome on the battlefield is, is important in all sorts of ways, but also I think it'll have a decisive link to West's future relationship with Russia, because if Russia ends up occupying huge chunks of Ukrainian land, then that will always be a conflict that is impossible to really overcome. I, I don't see any any agreement there. I don't see the West legitimizing it. I think it's very hard for Russia to give it away. So maybe paradoxically, but in this case, I think Russia's defeat on the battlefield will actually help a better relationship with the West in the future, regardless of the kind of leadership that emerges in Russia. But that will just sort of eliminate one inevitable conflict question or or make it smaller in in size yes absolutely i mean it, it, it seems like just to build on a few of your points uh or comment um it seems like the kind of the end of the of the of the war is is not in sight but then depending on how it ends or how it uh 
how it kind of settles, uh, or, or what the result is, um, you know, then the, the problems, the huge, obviously gigantic problems that is it has caused, you know, are going to be with us for, you know, for, could be for, for decades or, or, or more. Um, so that's obviously a very, uh, disturbing a thought. What, you know, another thing you mentioned that I'll, would just note um, the idea of uh, you know, going further. In Poland and other countries, there was a. There's been some talk uh, about an article on the state uh, news, Russian state news agency RIA, from today or yesterday, I believe, kind of claiming, not you know, baselessly claiming that Poland is in the midst of a big operation to kind of take control over Ukraine and the rest of Central Europe. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that uh, that's out there in terms of the, the Russian propaganda that's that's uh, kind of making excuses, I guess, for, for whatever happens um, in, in this war. Uh, and you also mentioned, uh, you know, another thing, the idea that this... Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about to, to what to what year has Putin kind of thrown Russia back? Um, you know, to the eighty, the nineties, the eighties, the seventies. But uh, but as you point out, I mean, in terms of foreign policy and, and what he's done, it's really kind of the and, and I saw this elsewhere as well as kind of the an ar archaic um, uh, archaic uh, foreign policy. And and also you mentioned this. This I find quite. I mean, fascinating. Uh, it's, it's obviously horrifying, but the idea that Russia was kind of one of the reasons few people predicted that until the last days, really, until some of his darkest kind of comments uh, in February, one reason that few people predicted he, that Russia would actually go ahead with the invasion was that it seemed like it could get um, not 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 everything it was demanding. Um, but some of the, but a lot of the things that you, you could presumably would actually want in terms of rearrangement of European security, possibly. Um, uh, so, you know, and that was just uh, kind of thrown away. And, you know, as you say, I think, um, you know, for a while it seemed like the ne negotiations that were, that were held before the invasion, you know, they, they could have been meaningful, um, but... In the end, it turns out that maybe uh, there was no, there was you know no hope for them uh, in the first place, uh, and you know we we may never know. We may know some of it, as you mentioned, uh, when archives open uh, long after this is over. Um, so thanks uh, for those for those points. The other question I'd like to ask, um, it's sort of related. Uh, it's about the course of of the war and the role of the West. Um, some Putin's comments uh, came at a time when things are kind of changing in terms of the the situation in in the war on the on the battlefield. Several weeks ago, it started to seem as if Ukraine had a pretty good chance of a uh, decent chance of driving Russian forces out of the country, uh, or at least out of mainland Ukraine. Um, and people were starting to talk uh, about something that they, they hadn't really uh, before, which was Ukraine, the prospect of Ukraine winning the war. Um, 
after several you know ma major setbacks for Russia in, in the in the first in the first days, weeks, and, and really the first couple months, uh, you know, and there's still setbacks for Russia. But now, many observers are saying the kind of Ukraine driving Russian forces out. Uh, seems less likely than it did quite recently, and many are predicting the war will continue um, for months or for or for years. Kadri, what's your thinking on this, and and to what degree does the situation in the coming weeks and months depend on the actions of the West? I mean, you mentioned that uh, that I guess relations between Russia and the West will will depend largely for a long time on the outcome of the war. But so how much do you think depends on the actions of the West in terms of, I guess, weapons deliveries um, and the response uh, to Ukraine's bid to join the European Union and so forth? Uh, thanks. Um, yes, well, this question carries a risk of making me aware that the boundaries of my competence uh, which I will try to avoid. Um, but what I understand from <clears throat> people who know military matters better than me, um, well, that was to be expected because Ukraine had strengths in the early weeks of the war when Russia tried to do something stupid, to send these long columns uh, long ahead from supply lines, they were vulnerable, they were easy to attack for Ukrainians. Ukraine also had more supplies in, in the early weeks. So I guess we, we got that uh, impression of, of success from those early, uh, early months when Ukraine didn't fall, uh, as, as many expected. It resisted bravely, so that Russians were forced to uh, rethink their game plan. And to be completely honest, it wasn't exactly that Ukraine drove Russians out. Uh, Russians left because they decided to focus on the battlefields in, uh, in Donbass. Uh, they weren't exactly kicked out, but they of course had to leave because they had uh, done a stupid plunder. It, that, that game plan was not viable. But I think it was always obvious to military analysts that once it gets down to the classical war of attrition that we are not seeing now, it will be extremely hard for both sides, these merciless city battles. And these will erode some of the advantages Ukraine had early on. Um, I hope they still have some advantages over Russia. I mean, in city battles, they say that the defender always has, has the edge. I, I hope that is the case. But, but right now, really, I mean, Ukraine faces off Russia's massive firepower. And, and that, is, that is truly hard. So in that situation, I think Western arms deliveries are really quite critical. And I, I would hope that the West can give Ukraine more and sooner. Whether that will help to turn the tide entirely, I do not know. But it, it might become close at a point when both armies are exhausted so that some sort of ceasefire inevitably uh, follows. And that is, I think, um, probably where it could end. Uh, <clears throat> based on what we are seeing now. 
it's probably unlikely that Russia will, but Ukraine will manage to drive Russia out of eastern Ukraine. It's also questionable how big advances Russians can have because also their army is uh, is not unlimited. I mean, if you if you listen to what military analysts say, Russia doesn't have a good conscription system that would uh, that would be a solution. Plus. Uh, they don't want to do uh, total mobilization anyway. So Russia's manpower is is probably going to be exhausted, uh, depleted at one point. Uh, and then I guess we could we could see a ceasefire. To make that ceasefire to be more in Ukraine's terms than Russia's, I think weapons deliveries are are important even if they are the game changer and, and there are difficulties, not everything can be taken into use by Ukrainians easily, etc., etc. We all, we all know what the obstacles are, nonetheless, and they are really fairly urgent. The other actions, such as candidate status in the European Union, that, to be honest, uh, <clears throat> that would be a big symbolic gesture of support. Uh, it would probably matter in that context. It would hopefully boost morale, etc. But I don't see it having any immediate effects on the battlefield. Either way, I don't also think it will make Russia more aggressive. Some people have tried to argue that uh, it is the European Union membership that actually irritates Russia because Russia started intervening in 2013 after Ukraine decided to sign DCFDA with the European Union. So that this matters. I... I think we are beyond the point where these things mattered. Russia has gone all out in Ukraine and EU membership uh, does not change their plans for, for better or worse. Um, and it doesn't change many things in, in the battlefield. But of course, I would hope that the European Union would approach that matter responsibly. What I also would not want to see is Ukraine promised a candidate status now and then it being delayed like we was the case with, with Turkey that caused huge disappointment and in the end played a role in, in making Turkey-Europe relations strange as they are now. So this is nonetheless, even though it doesn't have immediate impact on the battlefield, that is a very serious decision that one uh, should think through and and really mean it if we if we go for it. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like kind of very sound advice. And um, interesting, your point that uh, at this at that at this point. Um, an invitation uh, for Ukraine is, is not likely to make Russia more aggressive. As you mentioned, uh, in, a, in a way, this whole this whole thing started on the war that's been going on in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass for uh, for a little more than eight years. Um, you know, started with uh, the the uh, plans by Ukraine when it was President um, Yanukovych to to uh, sign the um, trade agreement with the EU. Uh, and Russia and Putin particularly put a great deal of pressure uh, on him not to do so, and that worked. Um, but then uh, the uh, Maidan uh, protest movement uh, occurred, and 
that changed things. Uh, and then uh, after Yanukovych uh, fled, uh, Russia began, well, Russia seized Crimea and fomented the um, separatism and essentially leading to the war in, in the Donbass. Um, so, you know, that was a big factor at the time, the EU. Um, but as you say, you know, and, and of course, one of the one of the pretexts or one of the reasons that that Russia and Putin have cited for for what they're doing now is the idea that we can't let Ukraine join NATO. But that was also kind of uh, something that is you know maybe been sort of subsumed into the into the whole you know it's it's sort of bigger than that now. Russia's gone beyond um, beyond kind of any specific goals like that of preventing. Uh, preventing Ukraine from joining the EU or joining NATO, you know, as you said, uh, kind of going back to to archaic foreign policy. So uh, we'll see what happens with that. I believe there's a decision fairly soon on on the EU. At least a, at least a preliminary decisions coming up. Um. So I'd like to uh, open this up to, to questions. Uh, if anyone has any questions, um, you can, I've, I've said how, how you can ask the questions. Let me see if there are any. Okay, I'll just wait a little bit longer if anyone... Yeah, I'm here. Thank you. Um, thanks for the discussion. Thanks for the panel. Just a few a short comments and a question. First of all, Crimea wasn't seized because it wasn't lying there to be picked up. It was occupied by Russia, not even annexed. Occupied. Russia didn't foment separatism because there was no separatist movement to begin. Russia injected special forces and started the war in Donbass by Russian military in 2014, despite what Russia propaganda says. Um, that said, it's also peculiar how we try to um, figure out what Russia's aims are. Well, Putin already said what the aims are. It's to destroy Ukrainian nation essentially subjugate and right now they are perpetrating genocide so we can be clear on that that has been officially stated by putin that said uh the question the only question that remains how long will we wait for western governments and if not for the governments for Western societies and civic societies to drag their feet in order to give a nudge to their governments to deliver weapons to Ukraine. Because what we are witnessing is a genocide of Ukrainian nation happening in real life. So that's the question, the only question. Yes, well, thank you for the question, despite its nature. Um, and I agree with the assessment that there was no separatism in Eastern Ukraine um, at that time. It was, it was very obvious that 
after the Maidan revolution, the Eastern Ukrainian regions were of, uh, ready to adapt to the new reality. You, you, you could see that if you followed news in those days. And then uh, <clears throat> Russians, not even special forces, but, but people like Igor Kirkin, the uh, sort of um, foreign policy entrepreneurs or, or fanatics, uh, started turning up and uh, and that's what uh, made that uh, war and ensuing stalemate uh, possible. I entirely agree it wasn't sort of Ukrainian-born division at all. And I, um, if I had any doubts, I, I traveled through the full old uh, contact line in 2016 from Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, Severodonetsk, down to Mariupol. So uh, everything I, I needed to know about Eastern Ukraine, that trip told me. Um, these people were all tired of war and all considered it to be imported. As to weapons deliveries, well, um, I think European public is, is fairly... Emotionally, I mean, here in Germany, uh, I can see that uh, so my, my German colleagues and local media are impatient because they don't see Germany delivering weapons fast enough. But of course, I mean, one needs to understand that countries have their own security con to consider. And as I said, uh, Countries that have been more active in delivering weapons are now asking where to cross the point that makes them uh, either targets to Russia or um, or still, you know, Russia to consider them directly involved. And and these sentiments you can also see if you talk with people in sort of more hawkish countries who who have delivered quite a lot and, and significantly powerful weapon systems. So I think we also need to understand that, that countries have their own security interests to mind. And, and it's fairly hard to make that assessment. Of course, everyone wants Ukraine to have upper hand to, and Russia to, to lose and to learn a lesson. But um, if you think that this I could... I have a follow-up, sorry. Isn't this in European countries' security interest to actually stop the war in Ukraine because Russia is interested to further project? So eventually, at this point, Ukraine is carrying the burden of war for you. It's, uh, it's quite um, hypocrite to, to claim that uh, one's security interests are to, to basically languish and uh, drag feet because right now your security interests are in Ukraine. That, that's well, not really a question. Yeah, that is your assessment. And I think we all need to sort of have enough patience to understand that countries have different assessments of, of Russia's intentions, of how their own security becomes endangered, etc. I don't think it makes sense to sort of assume that our assessment is the only correct one and everyone who doesn't share it is a hypocrite. Uh, these things need to be 
stuff. Debated, thankfully, we have organizations such as, as NATO, but it's not going to confront Russia head on, but at least it's a good platform where Western countries can share information, intelligence assessments, etc. Et but that is a complicated matter for, for countries. So I, um, I see very many people who are very emotional and very impatient. I understand that. It's hard not to be when you see what is happening in Ukraine. But I just wish to remind us that the governments that are, uh, we might think, dragging their feet are not doing so because of evil intentions or laziness or comfort or whatnot. Uh, there is bad thinking, bad concerns, bad considerations. And sometimes, indeed, sort of bureaucratic hurdles uh, behind it, um, and it's not—it is not so easy. It should be done. I agree with. That. I agree. I agree with that statement. The only final question is: uh, considering that the genocide is happening, so how many more lives have to be lost? Right now, it's tens of thousands. Will we wait until it's hundreds of thousands or millions? until we make a move or it's Look, just, think... just a different country sounds far away and we can just enjoy our cozy you know cozy lifestyle in the middle of europe until uh ukrainians can carry the burden of war and suffer so uh, it's an open-ended question of course but right i mean how long will we wait or how long will western countries wait or what will they do not really a question for for someone analyzing the situation you're you're asking a question um that's rhetorical i guess um but i really thank kadri for for her answers to to the questions you did ask um and uh are there are there any other questions i'd like to to move on Anyone else uh, have any have any questions? We have scared them all off. <laughs> um, sorry, was somebody raising their hand, Rosalie? Perhaps not. Um, just, I just want to say about that uh, about that exchange. Just, you know, I, I think I think Kadri did say, you know, respond to the question that I asked about how important is, you know, is our our Western actions, and she mentioned, you know, that weapons, uh, you know, are, are are crucial. I believe was the word, or critical and and very important. So, you know, that's that's uh, part of the. Uh, part of the answer to, I think, what you were asking. So uh, just a few more moments, but if, if no other questions, I'll uh, wrap it up here. Okay, let's do that. Um, thanks very much, uh, everyone, for joining us. And Kadri, thanks, thanks very much for your, for your uh, excellent insights. Thank you.
All right. Once again, I've been speaking to Kadri Leek, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And my name is Steve Gutterman, Editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus at RFERL. As I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. And my newsletter, The Week in Russia, will appear on June 24th uh, after uh, one week's hiatus. Thanks very much for listening.